All right, if you would find your seats, we're going to go ahead and get started. It's 9 o'clock. A little bit different in here, obviously. It's exciting. Definitely looks pretty barren up there. Um, but yeah, welcome. Didn't really know what to expect with Sunday school now being first uh, in the morning, but it's exciting to see you all here, and I'm excited to continue this series. So let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God who um, is with us, is for us, um, is full of grace towards us, but also full of truth, Lord. And so there are some um, really rich, yet oftentimes challenging truths, um, especially when we think about your vision and your um, design for our sexuality. And so we just come before you again this morning acknowledging our need for your help, uh, for your help to, to guide us uh, in the paths of righteousness, Lord, when it comes to our sexuality. Um, so give us understanding uh, this morning as we consider these things. Give us humility as we learn. And um, I pray that uh, we would continue uh, having a better grasp of your design and your vision for um, our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are continuing talking about biblical sexuality. Um, we've begun looking at Song of Songs. We're going to continue doing that this morning. And we also have um, just different uh, topics that will come up naturally as we continue walking through this book. We've talked about body image last week and just this reality that a healthy approach to body image is not, because the, the, the woman um, expressed some concerns of her body image, and she actually will again today. Um, and we talked about last week that a healthy approach is not just only focusing on the inward self, although First Peter 3 tells us to do that, but there's a sense in which that um, isn't the complete approach because God fearfully and wonderfully made us. He, he designed our bodies in a specific way for specific purposes, and there's a sense of contentment that we should have with who God has made us, and it's not just denying that, as well as God calls us to care for our bodies. And then we talked at the first, the first time about the three lies. So we kind of started talking about, okay, how does, our, how does the culture we live in think about sex? Um, and we're going to talk about that more today and more, more in depth. But we talked about sort of, th I've kind of summarized three lies. Um, we've talked about how we're going to take a blended approach to Song of Songs, that it's both um, very literal, talking about how relationships should look, but also there's a spiritual aspect where it shows us some things about our relationship with Christ. So today we're going to talk about chapter 115 through 27 and expressive individualism, and I'll explain more of what that means. Next week, we'll talk about singleness. Then we'll talk about uh, the position paper on same-sex attraction and transgenderism. We'll probably do that for two weeks. And then we'll get into some other things as well that you can see up there. All right, so looking at Song of Songs. If you remember last week, we looked at verses 1 through 14. Uh, the woman had begun by just expressing her longings for her groom but also some of her insecurity. And then the man comes in and affirms his attraction of her. Um, and then it ends with the woman just longing to be with him. 
there's this there's this part at the end of that section where she's hoping that the perfume that she's wearing, the scent of it, would carry through the air to wherever he is and that he would smell it. Um, and she ends by making this exclamation that his love is like En Gedi. It's this oasis for her. Uh, today, the section we're going to look at is, is much more of a dialogue. There's, there's kind of shorter sections where they each talk, and there's this more of this dialogue, um, quicker dialogue that goes on. So he starts in verse 15 of chapter 1, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Um, so he says, you are beautiful. Actually, both of them will say this to each other in a moment. But uh, he does it twice. Um, we see here that it's important for uh, those in love with each other to declare their affection for each other. Uh, Phil Riken, who's one of the people I'm reading on Song of Songs, he tells the story of his dad. His dad didn't give him much advice as, much as far as it concerns um, you know, how to relate to women. Uh, but he, he'll never forget where he was talking about his affection towards one woman. And his father, all he said is, do you love her? And he said, yes, I do. He said, um, well, you better tell her. That's, that's all he really said. And, and Phil was like, that's actually was super helpful. Um, and he says the man in Song of Songs takes that same advice. Um, you know, Billy Joel, one of his lyrics, he said, tell her about it. Tell her everything you feel. Give her every reason to accept that you're what? Is Ryan Slayton here? He's a big Billy Joel fan. Do you know the, the end of that? Oh, come on, Ryan. That you're for real. And, uh, and that's what he's doing there. Um, we'll find out soon that she needed to hear this again and again. Um, he says her eyes are like doves. We don't know exactly what dove is referring to. Is it the shape of her eyes? Is it their impact? Is it their beauty? The more important part is that he's talking about her eyes. Um, the eyes seem to be one of his favorite features of her. That's actually true of Jacob and Rachel. That was one of Jacob's favorite features of Rachel. And it's an insightful thing because gazing into someone's eyes is one of the most personal experiences possible. I remember um, having to go through this. I was in training to be a counselor at a camp, and someone in their training had us pair up with someone, and we just had to look at each other's eyes for two minutes. And it was weird, and it was, there was just something about it. And they were just trying to show the importance of eye contact. Um, and... Uh, you know, eyes are the most expressive parts of our face, and it helps you recognize someone's emotions, it builds trust, it deepens connection, and so, um, you know, he shows the importance of the eyes. And then she responds, behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green, the beams of our house are cedar, our rafters are pine. This is the first time she praises his physical appearance. But then she moves quickly on to just, uh, just her love of being with him in person, and that's more important to her. It says our couch is green. The word couch there, it can mean bed. It can just mean a piece of furniture. Uh, the NIV, it says our couch is verdant, which is a fancy word for saying covered with green vegetation. Um, the idea there is fruitfulness. And so I think there's definitely some implications of you know, their future sexual union and fruitfulness of that and, and having kids. Um, but it also could be referring to just having a rich relationship that's bearing fruit in many ways. Um, then it says, the beams of our house are cedar, our rafters are pine. That's, that's more metaphorical. Um, she's exalting in just the, the enduring firmness of their relationship. 
They're able to build a strong family upon this relationship. And so for her and for them, it's not just about them being able to have sex with each other. It's about um, a life together. They're wanting to build a home together. Um, And this is a deep human desire. There's a longing that we have to create and build a home. Um, But that's also our human longing to, to, to build a home is a shadow of our heavenly longing to have an eternal home with God. So she says that, but then she goes on in chapter 2, verse 1. She says, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. This is actually an expression of her insecurity in her appearance again. Um, she says, she's basically saying that word rose is actually not the best translation of the Hebrew there because it gives this sense of, because to us a rose is beautiful. The word m- more means wildflower. And so the sense is, she's saying, I'm just a wildflower. Of Sharon. Um, and so uh, Phil Riken, he says, kind of like what she's saying is like a dandelion on a soccer field. Um, she's just, you know, one of many. And, uh, and she'll say that, or I guess then, um, then he responds quickly, like he did last time. He responds quickly, as a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young woman. So he immediately addresses again, he turns that image on its head, uh, rather than her just simply being one flower of many, he compares her to a flower that is amongst brambles. It's the, a phrase today is more like a rose between two thorns. Um, she's the only one for him. And so he's expressing just how, much, how unique she is to him. And then she responds, As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young women. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. And so the woman responds with parallel words of praise. Um, Just as she is called a lily among brambles by him, uh, he is called an apple tree in the forest. So comparing an apple tree to the other trees, it's a more beautiful tree. It's a more fruitful tree. Um, The idea of apple tree has been taken uh, by some to have sexual overtones to it. Um, Some of that is because in the ancient Near East, apple trees uh, could sometimes be Um, images for sexual things and fruitfulness. Um, But the commentators I read said that that this doesn't necessarily have to have sexual overtones to it. Um, You know, it it talks about, it mainly more emphasizes the shadow, the shade of the tree, um, and the protection that that gives. And the fruit is the sweetness of their mutual fellowship. Um, that's not less than their sexual intimacy between each other, but it's certainly much more. Um, apple trees are strong, especially in a desert climate like Israel. And so, you know, I think something as we kind of pause for a minute and, and reflect, we're seeing here the importance of mutual attraction to each other. There, there is a sense in relationships between male and female that, there, that mutual attraction is important. It's, it's not everything. Often it can become everything. Um, it's not most important, but it is important. And um, for those who are married, it can be helpful to go back and affirm those things that initially attracted us to the other, um, as well as s- express how you see that working itself now um, in your life together. And then thinking about more in a spiritual sense, um, you know, the things that have just gone on and, and how they uh, relate to us spiritually. Christ, 
uh, though we are, you know, one of billions of people, uh, to, to Christ, we are the apple of his eye. We are like a lily among brambles in, in Christ's eyes. Um, he loves us for who we are. And we can also, like the woman delights to sit in the man's shade, we can delight to sit in Christ's shade. Um, uh, Phil Riken made a great point here. He said, we often act spiritually single um, instead of being married to Christ. You know, married people always have to give, they have to live their life giving consideration to another person who's living with them and their family. Um, a single person has more control over their life. Um, and, and Reichen says, unfortunately, that's the way we operate spiritually often. We operate as if we're kind of on our own. And, and there's this great, great quote from, and this is kind of breaking all the rules of PowerPoint. It's, it's a very long quote, but it's, it's worth reading the whole thing. If you are married to Christ, is that relationship the center of your thinking? Do you find yourself dreaming about him, lost in amazement at how wonderful he is, how incredible it is that he should love you and longing for more of his presence? Do you constantly wear out your friends and relations with endless chatter about how wonderful your beloved is? If you are anything like me, the answer most of the time is no. I have to admit to living most of the time as a functional single, spiritually speaking. Every now and then I bump into Christ, as it were, and am reminded that we are married much of the time, I am so absorbed of my own earthly desires and projects that I admit to my shame that he never even crosses my mind. And so I think, you know, this, this dialogue between the two in Song of Songs is a good reminder of just this ongoing relationship and affection we should have in our relationship with Christ. So it continues, and verse 4 is probably the most famous verse in all of Song of Songs. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. First of all, I want to note that the woman at this point is, is still, she's more fantasizing about being with him in the future. That's kind of what she was doing a lot in chapter 1. And we know that because at the end of verse 5, she says, I am sick with love. I'm lovesick. And um, if you think about how love is talked about, especially in the ancient Near East, the fact that she's sick for love means that she's not currently with um, her lover. That she is, if she was with him, she wouldn't be sick for love. She would be with him. Some think that though in verse 6, she's maybe with him now, or maybe she's still, you know, um, dreaming about being with him. Um, and, and you'll see in verse 7 that it's, it's obvious that they're not consummating their relationship yet. All right, so the banqueting house, it's literally in the Hebrew, it means the house of wine. So we don't know exactly what a banqueting house is referring to, but it's anywhere where they are able to express their, their kisses like wine. That is that phrase earlier. Many believe it's, it's kind of, it's, it's wherever it is that they can be together, just the two of them. And it says, his banner over me. A banner, what was a banner? It was a military standard to rally and identify troops. Um, so there's a number of things going on here. She's kind of acknowledging her submission to him as her head. We see already in the first two chapters quite a few examples of just this headship and submission that the Bible talks about in marriage. Um, she's acknowledging that his leadership is a protective, loving, and nurturing one, using that image of banner. It also shows that she no longer acknowledges her parents as her banner as it were. This is, she's leaving and cleaving, as the Bible says. And Phil Riken has an interesting take as well. He says, it's kind of like this phrase, 
His banner over me was love. Um, it's like a girl wearing her boyfriend's fo- football jersey as a token of affection as, and as a public sign that they are together as a couple. Um, and so she's, she's so enthralled with him, and in verse 5, she needs nourishment. She's so sick with love that she needs, she's becoming weak. And so she needs raisins, it says, because she's exhausted with her love. Um, and then the, she wants apples, and, and you know, she likens him to an apple tree, so it's just kind of her wanting him. Um, and so in verse 6, we see it's not just his presence, though, that she wants. It's, it's, his, it's his caresses. And this is very clearly a longing for sexual intimacy. Um, but interestingly, um, the word there in the Hebrew, it's also used in Proverbs 5 in a sexual way. But it's not graphic. It's more subtle. Um, and this is, I, I learned this week that there's a lot of um, poetry in the ancient Near East that is very graphic and very pornographic. And so here's another instance where we see the Bible is erotic but not pornographic. Um, and that's, that's a phrase I learned from Phil Riken. And so now we have, notice there's like a buildup going on in Song of Songs. It starts with these passionate kisses between them we saw last week. Now we see them gazing into each other's eyes. We see these longings for intimacy. We can see where this is going. Yet the woman wants us to stop right there. She says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Okay, so in light of how powerful love clearly is, that Song of Songs is showing, she adjures, she, she exhorts the daughters of Jerusalem. Uh, these are, you know, the women that she's friends with who, who are not in relationships. And she does it by the gazelles or does. What does that mean? Some think it means, um, you know, gazelles and does represent love, and so she's kind of swearing by love itself. Others notice that the, the gazelles and does, the, the Hebrew word there, is very similar to two words for God. The word the Lord of hosts and then the word God Almighty in the Hebrew are very similar to the words for gazelle and, and doe. And so it could be that she's swearing by God himself. But what is she swearing? To not stir up love until it pleases. Uh, it's almost likening love, especially sexual um, attraction, like a sleeping lion. Um, you know, it's almost like she's saying, girlfriend, you do not want this to be this hungry for a man until the time is right. Um, and notice it's not saying that you have to stay asleep. You have to kill those desires all your life. No, you can, you can act on those desires, but just until it pleases, the time is right. Um, love is a powerful emotion that can cause temporary insanity. Um, researchers have done research on the brain when someone is kind of initially attracted to someone and in, in, in that phase of infatuation, and it, and it works on the brain the same way cocaine does. Um, and so it can cause us to do things we otherwise wouldn't. So Song of Psalms, it, 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 it affirms the appropriateness um, and beauty of those feelings as long as they're in their proper place. So the unmarried daughters of Jerusalem are warned about the dangers of stirring such feelings before their time. It's not because those feelings are dirty, um, but precisely because of how beautiful and potent they are. Those feelings are intended uh, to be things that help bond you to someone inseparably. And so that feeling is good when it bonds you. 
it's not good when it's not used for bonding. And so it's good when those are enacted on in a relationship that has already been bonded through a covenant. And, and, and your promise to be with each other forever, to be bonded together, that's where it's best to act on those feelings. So that phrase, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases, that flies in the face of what we are taught about sexuality in our culture today. Um, C.S. Lewis, he said, um, I think prophetically, decades ago, the Christian sexual ethic is so difficult and so contrary to our instincts that obviously either Christianity is wrong or our sexual instinct is wrong, one or the other. So we know this. Our culture is a culture that teaches that every desire should be satisfied um, as it comes. And so I want to talk about that reality uh, the rest of our time. And I kind of want to do it a little bit as a precursor to our discussion in a couple weeks um, of gay and transgender issues. Um, obviously, it applies to, to talking about sexuality in any way. As I've thought through this, I wish that I would have placed this part of the class next week. It flows a little bit better, um, but I think, I think it'll be fine. Um, so I want to use, uh, the main person I want to use to talk about this reality in our culture is Carl Truman. He's written a book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And it's a, it's a very big book, um, very helpful. It's very philosophical and historical. And he's trying to show how we've gotten to this point um, in the West of, of viewing of things like transgender just decades ago would be unthinkable, and now it's mainstream. And how have we gotten there? And some uh, guidance that I've gotten on reading this book is to start with the last chapter. In the last chapter, he gets much more just practical and, and shows the relevance of all this history he's just laid out. And so people have said if you start with the last chapter, it kind of makes the rest of the book make a little more sense. And also, he's gotten feedback from people of just wishing that this book was more accessible to, to people. So I'm, I'm excited to say he's actually coming out in a couple months with a more um, uh, condensed version of this book. I think it comes out in April, a more accessible version. But I wanted to just kind of hit on some of the things he says, especially in the last chapter, as hopefully a way to maybe uh, whet your appetite for this uh, helpful book. So one of the things that he talks a lot about in the book is expressive individualism. That's one way to describe the spirit of our age, um, in the West especially. So expressive individualism is a belief that each person must act based on expressing his or her core feelings and desires. Um, so that, I mean, that describes so much of how we are taught to live our lives. And a similar word, that kind of leads to something that is called emotivism. And that's coined by a, another philosopher that, that Truman talks about. It's the doctrine that all evaluative judgments and all moral judgments are nothing but expressions of preference, attitude, or feeling. Uh, your feelings and how you feel about things can be arbiters of, of you know, how you live your life and the decisions you make. And so he's just trying to show how the, ri the rise and triumph of that way of looking at life in this book. He says it's most clearly seen in the rapid rise of the LGBTQ movement. Um, 
but also it's, you know, we see it just in the general culture of sexual freedom that we live in. But he says these are symptoms. These, these behaviors and these teachings that we see today are just symptoms of a deeper movement of what it means to be a person, of what it means to be a self. You know, the LGBT mu- movement came out of the sexual revolution in the 60s, but that came out of the philosophical ideas and trends that can be traced from Rousseau centuries ago through the Romantics to Freud, who really um, sexualized that thinking, and then now what Truman calls the new left. Um, and helpfully, he, Carl Truman, he says, expressive individualism is not all that bad. You know, he, his, this book, he says, I'm not trying to make this book a polemic or a lament. I'm just trying to articulate the reality we live in. Um, and he says that expressive individualism is not all that bad. They're emphasizing the inherent dignity of each individual. You know, if you think about it, feudal Japan and medieval Europe, the way they thought about humans was very flawed. Um, They they taught that some humans are worth more based on their position in in a social hierarchy. And so expressive individualism is heading in the right direction uh, by correcting some of that bad thinking. However, as Truman says, they go too far. You know, the Christian notion that humans have dignity, uh, that's something that we would agree on with expressive individualists. Where do we base that thought, though? We base that on the reality that we are created in God's image. Um, But in the expressive individualist worldview, um, human dignity has no basis in any sacred order. You're just dignified because you're you. And and Truman, he argues that that is ultimately going to lead to anarchy, because uh, there's just going to be competing um, authorities that people grasp on um, to make these claims of humans. But he says, we now live in a world that has cut itself off from any agreed upon, you know, transcendent, so that's a, a transcending above uh, our world, any transcendent order by which our culture might justify itself. Um, so now we live in a place where we live merely for the present where the pleasures of the immediate moment are all that matter. So that's kind of become sort of the new. There's no end to which we are created for that is agreed upon in society. So it's, it's living for the moment. Um, we're all Epicureans again. And Freud uh, is the one who made, who really um, popularized the idea that sexual gratification is how we most clearly um, live out of ourselves. By, by gratifying our sexual desires. And so it's important to do that in life. Um, another guy, he said, he said this in 1900. And I think that what he said in 1900 could, could be said just as much today, and it was almost prophetic. This was a philosopher in America named William James. He argued that our strong personal feelings and spiritual intuitions, so what we have inside of us, are most important in shaping who we are and how we live. This sets us free from traditional sources of authority, like the church. And so, I mean, it's interesting that that was written in 1900, and that's so much the the mindset today. So this age of authenticity that we live in has placed heavy burdens. If you think about it, it's placed heavy burdens on um, intimate relationships because you're you're, you're putting all your eggs in that basket. That's where you need to be fulfilled. You're, the other person needs to be the one who's the source of you gratifying uh, your, your life. 
And this has left couples striving to build security and meaning on, on weak foundations. This, this concept of just needing to have this soulmate. Um, and so since relationships are no longer seen you know, uh, from a, a more heavenly perspective as having meaning beyond themselves, they're divorced from any greater purpose than, than one thing. My personal happiness and me gratifying my desires. And so this makes us vulnerable to things like infatuation or falling for someone because it impacts the brain so much. And you, know, you can be committed to someone but then you are infatuated with someone else and you want to, um, you know, be with that person. And it's all about, is, is this personally fulfilling me? You know, a famous example of this is the marriage of Seal and Heidi Klum. They were such an example to broader society of just having this rich marriage. They would uh, have renew their vows every year. They were married for seven years and everyone thought so highly of the relationship. They had three biological children together. But you, you start to realize that their relationship was built on those yearly vows. It was almost this conditional relationship of having to re-vow. And after seven years, they're just, they lost that infatuation. And, it, and because it was based on that, they ended up parting ways. Uh, this, this idea of kind of this culture of living for the moment, it makes us very vulnerable to pornography, um, which is a, a, an easier and easier way to gratify some of those desires. And it's, it's sad to think about how as this, you know, sexualized society is growing, right alongside that, the access to pornography is growing as well. And just what a, what a difficult concoction that that is of being in a society that's teaching us to fulfill our desires, um, our sexual desires, and then just the easy access to doing that. And of course, this all leads to an easier validation of gay and transgender self-expression. And Truman, he, he, you know, he's kind of summarizing all of this. And then he says, we as the church, we can't just sit and point the finger. We have to point the finger at ourselves as well. We're, we're, we as the church are falling prey to this kind of mentality as well. Uh, we're, we're living spiritual lives that are only focused on us. We're using Jesus as a tool for our own personal happiness and not as our Lord. Um, you know, you think about high divorce rates in the church, high pornography rates. I mean, there's so many ways in which we as a church have a lot of, have to, have to grow as well and need to have humility as we think about these things. So where do we go from here? Expressive individualism, Carl Truman says, is here to stay. It's deeply embedded in our culture. And he says something interesting. He says, this means that the future is very unpredictable. When you live in a society that kind of has a, sort of a higher sacred order to it, it may, it may have some unhealth to it, but it, one thing it does give is stability, where there's this kind of agreed upon transcendent order. But in our day, he says, this, this basis on the individual lends itself to just unpredictability on where is this going to take us. So he makes four um, humble predictions on what could happen as we move forward in our society. And he makes them in re reference to sexual morality, to gay marriage, to transgenderism, and religious freedom. So first of all, sexual morality. What is going to change? What might happen um, in terms of how, uh, what is right and wrong and as it re refers to sexuality? I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this one and less time on the other three. In a sense, Carl Truman, he argues that sexual morality in our culture is actually in trouble. Um, 
you know, they're used to, there's, there's this sense of knowing what is right and wrong, and there's actually more conflict in our society between some of these things. You know, the increase of, you know, living out your sexual desires has led to the objectification of women. And so women are speaking out more about the objectification of women, and there's more tension. He says the rise of the Me Too movement um, is, has been a, an, an argument that sex is more than just recreation, uh, that there's something more deeply going on in sex than just recreation. Um, he says the irony is, is the Me Too movement is spearheaded by Hollywood actresses who display sex as merely recreational on screen, but yet they show in their lives that it's more than just recreational. And so he shows that there's just some natural ways that um, it's getting more conflicted in our society and what is right and wrong as it refers to sexuality. I also wanted to share some thoughts I got from listening to a podcast this week by a pastor in, in our denomination named Robert Cunningham. And he, um, he was giving some critiques of what he calls secular sexuality. It's kind of small, I'm sorry. But he gives a historical critique of the way, of the rights and wrongs we have in our day. He gives a global critique and a direct critique. I want to just share a little bit of that. He says, think about how sex has been thought about from a historical perspective. We have this myth in our day that we have now arrived at the best sexual ethic. But he says, this is not true. The way that um, we think about sexuality today is actually very, very similar to the way it was viewed in ancient Greek culture. Um, in that culture, any sexual activity was acceptable. They had public orgies. You, you probably have heard the stories of men um, the way that they're related to young boys and they were mentoring them, but there would also, it would become sexual and that was accepted. Um, nothing was more countercultural to the early church world than the church's sexual ethic. In fact, Carl Truman says in his book that w- if you want to think about, okay, what, if we want to learn from history, what, what era in history is most like the era, era we find ourselves in today? He says it's not medieval Europe. Um, It's not the Romantic period. It's second century. It's the pluralistic, sexualized society of the second century. We are back in the second century today. Um, In that century, the church was a marginal sect in a dominant, pluralist society. The church was under suspicion in many ways. Tom Holland, he's an atheist. He's an atheist historian, but he's admitted, as he's looked at history, he, he wanted to deny Christianity, but he admits that Christianity has been a positive advancement for human society. Um, He used to love antiquity, and then the more he studied it, he was horrified by the things that humans did. And he he points out how liberating the Christian ethic was. And so I'm getting back now to Robert Cunningham, who I'm learning all this from. He says, We celebrate all other forms of human advancement, yet in sexuality we are viewing regress, going back to the Christian traditions, as progress. Or or no, what he means by that is we're we're viewing regress as progress. We're going back to the second century, and we think that's progress when it's been proven that the way that they thought about sex in the second century was wrong. It's been proven that a husband and wife solid family is the bedrock of a flourishing society. All right, so that's from a historical perspective. He also does this interesting thing, thinking globally. He asks, do Westerners care that Asia, Africa, the Middle East, Central and South America, 
they all subscribe to a different sexual ethic than we do here in America or in the West. You know, he talks about how often Western elites, they're serious about repenting of their imperialistic past in many ways. He says, if that's true, then that will require humility to listen to other cultures and how they think about sex. Um, But you can just see that this is a sacred corner for them. The sexual revelation and, and all that it entails is too important. Um, You know, if they say to someone maybe in a different part of the globe who has a different sexual ethic, if they say to them, these people are either behind the times or they are just bigots, then it's proving the point. Um, That is an example of colonizing arrogance that those people would abhor in in other areas. Um, It's almost this colonizing arrogance that we have the best thought. And so he's just kind of just trying to point out inconsistencies as you think about how the the world thinks about sex in different ways. But then directly, he just, he just kind of looks at the Western sexual ethic directly and gives just immediate critiques. You know, the, the ethic, he says, of the, of the West as it refers to sex is that we should not put boundaries on it. We should embrace all expressions. To, dudge, to judge someone's sexual expression, to judge it is by nature bigotry. But he, he points out that that's even a standard that the sexual revolution cannot maintain. He gives the example of uh, bestiality being outlawed in Kentucky just a couple years ago. He asks, on what ethical ground is it outlawed? Zoophilia is a recognized sexual fetish. Are we to condemn those who have that? And so he's just pointing out inconsistencies. So this all-encompassing inclusivity is a myth. Everyone has their boundaries or all boundaries need to go. And so he said the the new sexual ethic is becoming religious. Um, It's not ethical. It's it's just this dogmatic thing. Um, He says the most devout religion of our time has been constructed around sexuality. It's puritanical. You know, there's this strict orthodoxy that you must adhere to, and you are disciplined or eventually excommunicated if you don't adhere to it. Um. You know, he says the modern sexual movement is doing to us what every religion does when it's acting unhealthily. And he admits that Christianity has had unhealthy expressions of their ethics in the past as well. And so conversion and legalistic obedience is being demanded of everyone. So it's this new religious oppression. And so he's just, he's just commenting that our view on sexuality makes Christianity wholly implausible. Um, your view on sexuality becomes the boundary marker. It's sort of whether you're in or out, and you are basically canceled if, if not. And so he says our only hope for plausibility in our current context is to offer a critique of the plausibility of kind of the sexual ethic of our culture, and that's what he's trying to do. So hopefully you caught some of that. That's all kind of humble predictions about where sexual morality is going. Then there's also um, gay marriage. Uh, Truman just kind of comments on, okay, where is that going to go? He says, basically, it's here to stay. Uh, there's no sense in which it'll um, go away in our society. Um, and he says two interesting things. He says, the redefinition of marriage, we often think it, it happened in 2015 in Obergefell versus Hodges, where, you know, same, same-sex marriage was legalized. But Carl Truman, he, he says, the redefinition of marriage in America happened in 1970 when no-fault divorce was um, legalized in California. Um, And that's where 
just this, this different approach to relationship was really embedded. I thought that was an interesting point. But he says another reason gay marriage is here to stay is just the power of story, the power of narrative. It has that all on its side. It's all about love and happiness and commitment and acceptance. And to oppose, you know, gay marriage is to oppose, is to oppose love and happiness and commitment and acceptance. And so you're a bigot if you oppose that. But he says transgenderism actually has um, a more complicated future. Um, he says there's actually a lot of disagreement going on in society between the gay and lesbian community and the trans community. There's a lot of areas in which they disagree. He says also feminists and trans community fight a lot, uh, especially when you think about sports and, and trans and how they're engaging in sports, and there's been a lot of battles going on. He also says the long-term impact of hormone treatment and surgery is still unknown, um, and there's lots of testimonies of just people having failed attempts at um, transitioning and, and just the discouragement that that brings. And so he said it's, it's just a complicated um, not as clear future. Um, and then he comments on the future of religious freedom. And he, he also just says here that it's complicated. It's, there's no clear-cut answer um, because there's no compromise that can really be achieved between traditional Christian values and expressive individualism. And so it's just going to get more complicated. Again, we're back in the second century here. So in light of this future, he gives four encouragements to the church. The first is to, to, for the church to elevate truth over experience. That doesn't mean elevate truth over living it out. That's not what he means. What he means is, you know, basing what is right and wrong on objective truth of the Bible, not on, you know, what someone experiences in their life and what, how their experience validates. You've maybe heard the phrase standpoint epistemology. That's this idea of like, we know what is true based on my standpoint and on what I think is true. And that, of course, completely denies Jeremiah 17 and how the heart is deceitful. Um, you know, and Truman says, of course, we need to be compassionate to the lived experiences of people struggling with things like same-sex attraction or trans or gender dysphoria, but we can't do it at the expense of truth. Another encouragement he gives to the church is to just continue cultivating beautiful community. The expressive individualist life leads to loneliness, and we can still present something better to our world. But also, from an internal perspective, we need flourishing church communities because the best way to really embed biblical truth in ourselves is to be a part of a community that's teaching it. Uh, humanity is, is designed in such a way that we we are shaped and most formed when we are in a community that's teaching us something. And so we need to continue having strong communities. And here he comments again on the second century world. He says it was the second century world that laid the foundations of later successes for the church in the third and fourth centuries. And how was that? It's because in the second century, the church existed as a close-knit community they were doctrinally bound community that required their members to act consistently with their faith and to be good citizens of the earthly city as far as good citizenship was compatible with faithfulness to Christ. He says we need to continue having a robust doctrine of creation. Um, I'm, I'm putting that in my own words now. He says we need to really continue having a strong sense of natural law. I don't know fully what he means by that, but I think what he means is just the sense of how we're designed. Genesis 1 and 2 answers so many questions for us um, on how to live in our current setting and how to think about humanity. 
So, so continue that. And then he says, as, a, as Christianity, we need to recover a high view of the physical body. Uh, we're not just souls. Our bodies, as we said last week, are for the Lord. We are, our bodies are owned by the Lord um, and for him, and the Lord is for the body. Whew. That's a lot. Uh, let's maybe see just an example of this. Brian, if, or if you could put that, I think we have time. It's a minute and a half commercial that is, um, that is very, in the last couple months, it's a commercial for Instagram. Um, I just want to show it and give a quick comment. <clears throat> so yeah, is it still available? All right, go ahead and play it. Ah. <laughs> yeah, it's so fun. Necklaces or rings? Chunky rings are very in right now. That's why I asked that, because I'm messing with my rings right now. What was your inspiration for this outfit? Picking out my outfit is what gets me out of bed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's one thing that you would tell, you know, your younger self? Okay. I don't know, just stay true to yourself. Don't worry about what other people are thinking. It's very, I feel like that's you. Like no matter how stressed you get, no matter how upset, it will always work out. Hidden talents. I don't know. <laughs> I'm, really good at, I'm really good at harmonizing with like garbage disposals and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> like if you, put, if you put any kind of mechanical machinery in front of me, like I can harmonize with it. That's a, that's a hidden talent, I guess. I just fall into things. Like I kind of like fell into paper mache too. But that's a complete side project. I'm really good at yo-yoing. Where do you see yourself in ten years? Man, I don't even know what I'd be doing tomorrow. Why are you still exploring about yourself? I want to be the current version of myself, like times ten. And I don't know. But I would like to be doing something where I get to do something new every day. All right, so we can affirm there's a longing for relationship that's, that's seen in there that's very human. Uh, there's a longing for creativity, which is very godly. Um, and I wish we could spend more time on this. Uh, I think one of the challenges presented here is there's the question, what do you want to be? And after several responses, the, the teaching is, whoever you want to be, it's yours to make on Instagram. Um, and so it's just this sense of our identity is, is formed in what works to draw attention and gain a following on Instagram, is, is what is being taught here. Not in being divine image bearers, made and loved by God, who desires to make us more and more like Christ. So just wanted to give that as an example of, of you know, a, a pretty expressive individualist um, advertisement. Father, thank you for this chance to reflect on these things, continue help, helping shape us 
more in your image as it comes to, to sexuality um, and help us as we continue this class. Thank you for this opportunity to speak freely about these things, Lord. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.